0: It is not a small thing to find a small thing for which to be grateful.
1: Welcome to the House of Mercy podcast. Grateful for everyone out there listening. I'm sitting on my back porch in the sun and it feels real good. Where are you, Russell?
0: Oh, I wish I was sitting on your back porch in the sun. I am down in my basement sitting at uh, Maria's sewing table. Um. She's been making a lot of masks. Oh, right. That's great. Yeah. that's some good ones, but I had to find a place where um, I could uh, get away, and maybe it's a little bit quieter. So I got no sun down here, but I I, I have it in my heart. (laughs) As you always do. Yes. I hope everyone's
1: doing okay out there.
0: Yeah, me too. I really hope everybody's doing great, and uh, the people that you're with, you're finding a little mercy together um i don't know if any of you have, have uh, been listening regularly to the shut-in sessions that we've been putting out it's uh, put them out during the week just to try to give you a little bit of mercy uh in your day we have it's like a mini gig we have three songs from one of the musicians that have been a part of house of mercy community or friends of the house of mercy community and then a, a prayer for the day and uh if you haven't heard it, go back and, and get caught up. There's some real great some real great ones there. Okay, hey, some of you might have built an
1: altar. If you did, that's great. And uh, We're going to do the words of institution again, and you could take communion, give it to each other during the hymn, after the words, if you want to.
0: Yeah, that's great. Uh can be uh, meaningful uh, to, I don't know, Would do we call it, worship? I guess we would worship together as a family.
1: All right. All right. This is the House of Mercy, and welcome to it. God of mercy, you are with us, creating love, making mercy possible. Help us be aware of you. Notice how it is you live among us. It's not always that obvious to us, so help us. Believe in mercy, and practice mercy, and embrace resurrection, even if we are a bit uncertain where to look, and not always clear what it means. Amen.
2: Won't you please stand and join us for hymn number 128, Just a Little Talk with Jesus. I once was lost in sin.
1: Join me in the prayers of community. God of mercy, help us act in ways that give life instead of taking it away. Help us not sit in tombs and look in tombs and stare at screens and hide behind walls and live in fear. Even though we have to look at screens a lot more these days. and We are confined by walls more than we like. And fear is all around us. Nevertheless, thank you for music and food and the sun and color and words and these bodies that allow us to feel and speak and make things and this complex and often very beautiful and sometimes terrible world we live in. Help us keep putting one foot in front of the other. Help us keep making life. God, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God of mercy, we pray for those who have lost jobs and for those who work and work and hardly get a break. We pray for those who are afraid of not having enough money to pay for food. We pray that our various fears and needs and different political beliefs will not make us hate each other, that anger will not turn into cruel action or hard hearts, that we will become more human, not less, that somehow this struggle we all have to face will help us be less divided rather than severing us further. The tension is mounting. Fill us with compassion for the people we have the hardest time with. This doesn't seem like something that comes easily. Help us make our way through the rough territory mercifully. God in your mercy, hear our prayer. God of mercy, it could hardly be clear that things don't just keep getting better. We are not all on the road to improvement. We pray for peace and love great enough to comfort the suffering and the dying. We pray that the light may come through the places where we are broken. God, in your mercy, hear our prayer.
0: Today's text is from the book of Genesis, chapter 24, verses 1 through 21. Now Abraham was old and well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his house, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear to the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I live, but will go to my country, to my kindred, and get a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the women may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth and who spoke to me and swore to me to your offspring I will give the land he will send his angels before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there but if the woman is not willing to follow you then you will be free from this oath of mine only you must not take my son back there So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all kinds of choice gifts from his master, and he set out and went to Aram-Neramiath, to the city of Nahor. He made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water. It was well toward evening the time when the women go out and draw water. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. I am standing here by the spring of water, and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. Let the girl to whom I shall say, Please offer your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one who you have appointed for your servant Isaac? By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, there was Rebekah, who was born, Bethul, son of, born to Bethuel, son of Milahka, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, coming out to her water, with her water jug on her shoulder. The girl was very fair to look upon. No man had known her. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, "'Please let me sip water from your jar. "'Drink, my lord,' she said, and quickly lowered her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, "'I will draw your camels also until they have finished drinking.'" So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw, and she drew for all the camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Every autobiography contains an unreliable narrator. Every family story as it's passed on from one teller to the next compounds the unreliable narrators. And every family story recalled again, a year on, or five years on, or ten years on, is recontextualized to tell some current emotional truth or help understand some long, misunderstood truth. Maybe to soften the blow of the answer to an old painful question. Why did she stay with him? Why did she go with him in the first place? Why did she marry him and move away with him? When she looked back at the first time they got together, the first time she ever saw him, he showed all the signs. He acted pretty much the same way from the beginning. All the signs were there, but now she had the advantage of distance. She had the clarity of her own part in it. When she first saw him with his friends at the Tally Ho, She was immediately drawn to him. It was her first time in the legendary neighborhood bar. She had only been legal age for a little more than a month. He was almost ten years older. John and Roger Nelson and Bill Nyquist were there with him, and they all stood up when she and her friends walked in. Anne and Angie knew him, knew them all, so they went over to talk to them. She followed. As they all talked, she hung back and... He... he didn't even get up. He barely looked up and nodded at them. He sat there looking at his beer like he was trying to figure something out. She was sort of pulled into the gravity he was creating with the intensity of his concentration. She couldn't look away. And then he looked up and saw her staring, and as if realizing he was being a little weird, smiled at her, ducked his head, and then looked at her again. She smiled and he motioned with his hand that she should join him. She went over and sat down in the opposite him. They just traded smiles back and forth, a first volley of glance and smile. She was drawn to this kind of hiddenness or slow reveal over the loud jostling for attention of the Nelson boys and Bill Nyquist. Eventually they began to put small questions on the table, to exchange evaluations of what they were doing, and what they hoped they might be doing. The conversation then gained momentum, and she didn't even notice when her friends and his friends left. They talked until closing time, made out in his car a little bit, and then he drove her home. After that, they just fell in together. Before long, they were married. Then she was pregnant, and after the twins were born, it all seemed in motion, and stopping or changing didn't seem like Even any kind of option. But it was then that she began to look back, began to ask herself questions, to attempt to understand her life or how the living it had brought her to be living in a sad little house with two babies and a sad man in a city where neither of them had knew anyone or had any family. It was clear looking back that he was depressed from the beginning. Well, maybe not depressed, but somehow broken, like from growing up. His mom died when he was young, and his dad was a totally self-involved backslapper that didn't seem to understand his introverted son, who was probably mourning the loss of his mom, maybe the loss of his purchase on solid ground. She admitted fully to herself that it was this misalignment that had attracted her. She had her stuff, too. It was like her scars matched up with his wounds. Her mom was kind of hard, hard on her and her brother, hard on her dad, who was just the most regular person middle America in the first half of the 20th century could turn out. She thought about this a lot. Even as a very little girl, she would see other moms fussing over their kids kissing their scraped elbows to make them better, cheering them on when they jumped tentatively off the diving board or even absent-mindedly brushing something off their husband's suit coat shoulder or straightening his tie. Her mom had none of that casual affection or delight, no sense of nurture or caretaking, and she figured it must have been her desire to take care of someone in the way that she wanted her mother to take care of her but never could. He seemed from the beginning like someone who needed someone to take care of him, to notice him, to listen to him, even to draw him out and encourage him to get out into the world and do something. As the twins got older and she poured all that nurturing and casual affection into them, his full-on clinical depression set in. She didn't really think she could be responsible for his mental illness. Or maybe really, he wasn't even responsible for his mental illness any more than he was responsible for his psoriasis or male pattern baldness. But knowing this did not prevent her from feeling that his withdrawal and dark absences was an act of emotional selfishness, especially when the twins needed him. They needed a dad, and she needed a partner in raising them not another person to take care of later when the boys didn't need her to help with their homework and read them bedtime stories she would sit at the kitchen table with the dull pulsing of the dishwasher and the din of the tv in the other room she would sit and think of him sitting in that same chair in front of the tv knowing he was not even watching it but staring past it like he stared into his beer the night they met But now there was no smile. There was no talking, no sharing, no reflecting. There were so many times she could have got out. So many times she could have left, and it would have been easier. Now it seemed cruel to leave him in this state. She would wonder what would have happened if she did leave him in the beginning, what kind of life she would have had, filled with love and fun, laughing, she pictured herself in some sunny place, younger, with some faceless other man, laughing and happy and free. It was not that she didn't have love. She loved him. But she wanted a different kind of love, one that wasn't felt as a dull pain or a suffocating sorrow, love that went beyond herself or him or her problems or disappointments. She wanted a kind of love That you joined in with or were caught up in, a love that carried forward from the past and went right on by you into the future, a big love that rendered her nearly inconsequential, happy, peaceful, but peacefully unimportant. But then she thought if she had a different life, she wouldn't have her boys, and she couldn't imagine life without them. It was usually at about this point the maybe God, question started. Maybe God wanted her to be with him because God knew she could take it, could survive his emotional absence, and really, he really needed her. Maybe God brought them together because no two other human combination of genes would create her two boys, and God had plans for them. Maybe God Once or has something planned for her that she can't even imagine, and it's only through this pain that she could get there. Then after he had died and the boys had moved away, she would be almost taken aback by the realization that thoughts of leaving him were irrelevant. It was all over and done. She could now only ask what if, or maybe God doesn't have anything to do with any of this. She thought that it seemed like people can assign all kinds of things to God. They can assign God responsibility for things, not working out the way a person wanted them to. They can blame God, or they can assign hope to God. And ultimately, we can say, This is how God wanted my life to be. I may not know why now, but I will one day. I have to believe this is how God wanted my life to be, she thought, because this is how my life has been. This is how my life is. And the only other options are to think God wanted my life some other way, and I screwed it up, or that God is not there, does not care. When she got to that point in her thoughts, she would say to herself, Okay, time to stop this nonsense and go to bed. She got up and pushed the kitchen chair in, folded the dish towel on the counter, turned the lights off in the kitchen, locked the front door, kissed the fingers on her right hand and touched his picture on the mantel as she passed it, turned out the living room lights, went into the bedroom, took off her robe, and hung it on the door. She knelt beside her bed, closed her eyes, breathed deeply, and thanked God for her life.
1: On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and gave thanks for it and broke it, and gave it to the disciples to eat, saying, Take, eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, Jesus took the cup and gave the cup for all to drink, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you and shed for all people for the forgiveness of sin. Do this in remembrance of me. We invite you to share communion with each other during the hymn.
3: Won't you please rise and join with us in singing House of Mercy hymn number 31, Near the Cross. Jesus, keep me
1: May the grace of Christ and the love of God and the peace of the Spirit go with you and be with you. Amen.